This is a Rooster Teeth production. In 1948, a mysterious dead body was found on a beach in Adelaide, Australia. The investigation soon yielded multiple bizarre discoveries. The cause of death and the victim's identity remain unknown. Today, we discuss what we know about one of Australia's most famous mysteries, the Tamam Shoot Case, also known as the Mystery of the Somerton Man. This is Red Web. Welcome back to Red Web, the show where each week we dive into a new mystery. I'm Trevor Collins. With me as always, Alfredo Diaz, your resident mystery enthusiast. Hello, hello. Another week, another mystery. Yeah, this is, uh, we got another big one here. The Tamam Shoot case, I don't know if you've heard of it, is uh, no. it's a classic. Okay. It's another classic true crime piece, yeah. Um, I'm getting really versed in all these different cases and these classic mysteries. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of details in this one. Uh, a lot of theories to dive into in the, in the thick of things. So what we're going to do for this one, uh, as opposed to doing the timeline and breaking things out, we're going to split this up into different pieces of the story and the investigation to kind of keep things a little bit more organized. Because as you'll come to find out, the timeline is expansive. The way the evidence kind of rolled out over time definitely took place over a course of several months. So we're going to talk about it in sections. So jumping right in there, let's talk about the body. November 30th, 1948. In the evening, a man named John Bain Lyons and his wife saw a man dressed in a full suit lying on the sand at Somerton Beach in Adelaide, South Australia. The man was lying with his legs outstretched and his feet crossed. His head was propped up against the seawall. They watched the man raise his right arm and then let it fall back down. Later that evening, another couple saw the same man lying in the same spot. This time, he remained motionless and ignored the mosquitoes flying all around him. The couple thought that he was either asleep or drunk and so they left him alone. And now the next day, December 1st, 1948, is when Lyons returned the following morning to see a small group of people around the body. It was then that he realized the man had died and the authorities were called to investigate. The man was in the same position that he had seen the day prior and, uh, and that witnesses had corroborated in the previous night. On him, a cigarette was laying on his collar as if it had fallen from his mouth. The body had then been taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital that very same day where an autopsy placed the time of death around 2 a.m. and likely that the cause of death was heart failure. So this guy has been sitting there the whole day on November 30th, seen by a couple couples there, and then the, the autopsy report is placing his death after having been seen, which is interesting. Huh. But that's a loose estimate. The pathologist then reported that he suspected poisoning despite the fact that no foreign substances were detected. And they also noted that the body had not been moved after death. Furthermore, the report said that the man's pupils were smaller than normal, that the spleen was about three times the normal size, and there were signs of internal bleeding in the stomach and the liver. The man's last meal was a pasty that he'd eaten about three to four hours before death, which further implied the possibility of a poisoning, but tests again showed that there were no trace of foreign substances. The man is thought to be around 40 to 45 years old and was described as five foot 11 inches or 180 centimeters, with gray eyes, fair to ginger colored hair, slightly gray around the temples, with broad shoulders 
and a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape like, uh, like that of a dancer or someone who wore boots with a pointed toe. The pronounced high calf muscles were also consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet. So we have quite a beautiful man on our hands. Okay. And a mystery is afoot. Beautiful man on the beach. Mm-hmm. People were seeing this beautiful person. You know, they thought that he was alive and eventually the person was uh, considered dead. So far, so good, right? Straight cut case. I mean, maybe he waved to the first guy that saw him uh, and then the hand collapsed. I mean, that's what we got. So yeah, that's far. weird. Just wave. He just waved. Yeah, or he put his hand up in some way before it collapsed, and that was like a, the only motion we have of this gentleman uh, re- so far. Was he reaching out for help of some sort? Like, it's a good point. He could have been. Look, I'm, you know what I mean. I don't know what to think anymore. There's always more don't, to it with these even, stories. <laughs> don't want to even worry about it. We're just laying the groundwork. Lots of details, like I said, a lot of factual details before really things start to spiral out of control. You said he was in a suit? Mm-hmm. All right, well, not really beach attire. Well, it depends on the beach you're going to. Maybe this man had a, had a business at the beach. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he's looking for his yacht. Uh, oh, he's on business beach. Look, he's on business beach looking to swindle some folk, do some deals, head back to the yacht. <laughs> but all right, at this point, you know, it's clear-cut case. We got it. We got the uh, autopsy going down. Uh, doesn't seem to be any sort of formed substances. We have a very descript like a very solid description of this gentleman for anybody who might know him uh but at this point the investigators began to more closely examine the outfit so now we're getting away from the physical evidence of his body and more into the wardrobe so he wore a white shirt with a red tie brown trousers a brown sweater and uh, a brown double-breasted coat stylish man very stylish well the thing that told me about the autopsy i think it's very interesting no foreign substances okay so i'm like he's not, he hasn't been poisoned or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or uh, maybe had some drastic allergic reaction. The other thing, though, I'm not hearing anything about like bruises or breakage of bones or. Right. That is a great point. Blood, you know, forced trauma. I'm not hearing any of that. That's true. Because there was no sign, and I might get into it in more detail later, but yeah, there's no sign of, of violence. Right. No sign of a scuffle or any sort of huh. physical activity in that way. And uh, and as I mentioned, like, even his hands, they didn't really show signs of, like, a laborious job, but also just no signs of any sort of fight or struggle. Yeah, that's... But what's yeah. interesting here, you know, we start to investigate the clothes. Yes, he's a smartly dressed man. But all the name tags, or I should say just the tags in general, and the maker's labels had been removed from the clothes. So some say that one label remained intact. Others say that all the labels were removed. But it's interesting that they were all removed. It feels very Joker, as if you want to be untraced. Maybe maybe he made his own clothes, or he just didn't want them to be tracked down. But uh, questions start to arise there. And another interesting note here is that one of his pants pockets had been repaired at some point with a type of orange thread, which to me is a very unique detail that one might be able to start tracing things down. So there's uh, interesting, unless it's like, a, I only have an orange thread and I can I have to fix my pants in a hurry. Or maybe there's a tailor down the street that's like, come on down to Joe Orange. I fix everything with orange <laughs> threads exclusively. Yeah. And I have- Yeah, that's my tag. <laughs> and I maintain great detail of all my clientele. I don't know. <laughs> it's just like, okay, it's an orange thread. You know what I mean? Maybe just. Had a little sewing. Maybe it's just orange. It's just orange. I mean, obviously, you got to look at everything, but there's a lot of details that we got going on here. 
Usually, right. usually with like these kind of um, mysteries or cases that we've discussed in the past, there hasn't been such vast amounts of detail. Right. Because the more detail there is, the more confident you can feel in the conclusion. And so when oh, you start yeah. to get all these details added in, you start to go, well, where's the mystery? Well, let me go ahead and continue down the line of details because oh, here we go. some of these details really start to open up the mind. So they also examined his belongings, the belongings that were found on him, at least. He had a railway ticket from Adelaide, which is where he was found, that went to Henley Beach. There was a bus ticket to North Glenelg that may not have been used. There was a U.S. manufactured aluminum comb, a half-empty pack of gum. He had an Army Club cigarette packet, which contained seven Conceitus cigarettes, a different and more expensive brand of cigarette, and also a box of matches to go with it. There was no wallet or ID found on the body. Attempts to identify him yielded no successful results. And what's more is that there were no fingerprint matches that were found. There were no dental records that could be found to match this individual. And authorities even sought international help with no success. Oh. And so you got to remember, we're back in the late 40s. Uh, you don't have the DNA test. You don't have a lot of the advanced Damn. forensics that we have today. And so people relied on dental records and fingerprint records yeah. and stuff. And so you and I sitting here today might not be in a fingerprint database because I don't know, maybe your fingerprints got scanned when you were a child. I don't know when they do that, honestly. Yeah, but I think it is when you're a child. They scoop them up. That's yeah. fair. Yeah, they ink them up, scoop them up. Ink them up, scoop them up. You know, they clone you just in case they need to replace you. Uh, Never know. <laughs> You never know. But in the late 40s, you know, like this is their main stuff. They're out here taking imprints of everyone's teeth. You buy a newspaper for 10 cents, they indent your teeth. They just got a check. <laughs> you take a bite out of a burger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Would you like a burger? Oh, man. Sure. Like, <laughs> got your teeth. <laughs> gotcha. You're in the system now. <laughs> um, yeah, this like every time I watch like, you know, movies that are like, timepieces like in the 40s 50s or maybe even before that i just sit there and I go man it must have been really easy to get away with like murder <laughs> you know what i mean, I mean just like straight yeah up, like, a lot of classic cases come from this time period you know yeah and this is just this just like is just more evidence to for me to believe that theory that i have yeah um well we say that and i mean flash forward in 50 years when we're doing episode 2500 we're going to be startled to death by how many True crime mysteries are still afoot today, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, because it's, it'll be like cybercrime at that point, right? Like, we, we talked about the whole Bitcoin mining and right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like, yeah it'll, it'll be on the web. It'll be digital. Ooh. Or it'll be like Minority Report. <laughs> oh, God. Spooky times. Start predicting uh, your actions and stuff. God, I don't, I don't want that. I don't at all. <laughs> um, uh, no, one, no one needs to know the future, man. No. But anyway... No. Yeah, no, sorry. Going back to this, I mean, like, no dental records, no fingerprints. Is no that, records it, internationally, it, too. So is that just because if that's what they did back then, is, is it because, like, the person didn't do it on purpose? Or, like, like I have no idea when they would do this, like, if they did it yeah. when they were a child. Yeah, it's like, did they sure do they it didn't. when you're growing up? Or do you right. only have these records when you are caught for a crime in the first place? That's yeah. a good question. For for a second, I, I thought maybe the person disguised their fingerprint. You know what I mean? Like if they burn their fingertips. So there's oh, no, men in black you, style? You know, yeah, or like, you know, filed down their teeth or whatnot. But so far, everything has been really descriptive. I know, I not worth. Um, everything has been super descriptive. So I'm thinking that 
There was none of that. They're, they just weren't in the system. You're saying he had a fine, tailor-made, double-breasted brown suit and those nice, stumpy little teeth. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, yeah it's, it's just really interesting. But like, this is only the beginning of the mystery here. So uh, as I mentioned, the authorities started looking internationally to get some help here because, you know, he had a U.S. manufactured aluminum comb. There's a couple pieces of evidence that put him in Australia, obviously. There's a lot of things that might indicate that he might not be from Australia, but no matches. So now flash forward a few days here, December 10th, after continuing to fail at identifying this man, authorities embalmed him. And because of his anonymity, he became known as the Somerton Man. An official inquest was made shortly afterward, and a plaster cast was made of his head and shoulders, or essentially his bust. And it's uh, very creepy looking, but we have a photo for that if you want to see it on our social at RedWebPod. So they made a bust of him? So they made a bust of him, and the only thing I can think so of is weird. that they want to keep his likeness around. So they embalmed him, but that can only last so long. They, they yeah. don't want to keep a full man floating around in a tank, you know, Star Wars style. So they eventually buried him and they kept a bust of him. So that way, if the case continued to find other people, they can say, can you identify this individual? Yeah, and, and I mean, it makes complete uh, sense. Just the first time I've ever heard of that. It's yeah, it's weird, but also smart. Australia knows some things, you know, they, they got some <laughs> tricks up their sleeves. So that was again kind of early to mid-December. So in January of 1949, after expanding the investigation to search for any signs of the Somerton man's presence in the area in the days leading up to his death, staff at the Adelaide Railway Station discovered a brown suitcase in the cloakroom. So remember, he had that train ticket. Oh. So they found a suitcase in the cloakroom and the suitcase had been checked in on November 30th, sometime after 11 a.m. The label on the suitcase had also been removed. So now people are starting to think, boom, got him. We have more yeah. details, more evidence of this man. It's also brown, like he's wearing the full brown suit, brown leather briefcase, all of it. So inside this suitcase, once they get it open, there's a screwdriver, a modified knife. The handle of it had been cut down. Shaving items and some more clothing. Some of the clothing was women's clothing, but the men's clothing in there was in the Somerton man's size. A pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc, and a reel of orange thread that matched the type used to repair the Somerton man's pockets. It is worth noting that this thread is not sold in Australia, and to my memory, this is a special wax-coated thread, which added more detail to it. So earlier we talked about that orange thread. This is why. Uh, and, and it's another U.S. product found on this individual that goes ahead and adds some more uh, question marks as to the origin of this individual. Clearly, he could be American, but this seems to be an international individual, so they could be from anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of weird stuff. It's a weird collection of items. It's just so random. And you said it was thread with like, you said wax on it? Yeah, so it's a special wax thread um, with the intent of repairing these pants. I'm learning uh, And that's so pretty much, much it. Yeah, it's probably some sort of, uh, I don't know, I'm not a tailor. I was just guessing maybe it's some sort of waterproofing or holds <laughs> yeah. in a better way. Or maybe the man likes orange. I don't know. I can't ask him. But well, uh, you, you, you took a shot at it. I took a shot. I did my best. than I am. <laughs> I mean, that's just even more confusing than how, you know, we're, I mean, we're already confused as hell. That was a bunch this of random This man needs to stop things. owning things. It's just yeah. one of those moments where you have a split second where you go, oh my goodness, we're about to bust this case wide open. And then mm -hmm. you're just, I, I'm confused. 
It's like I'm, I'm putting files on your desk one page at a time, I'm and then lost. suddenly I put the entire Harry Potter novel series on your desk. Good luck. Yeah. I, tell me more. Tell me more. What's all this? What's all this about? So, on these clothing items, labels and name tags had been removed from all of them except these three. A tie that was labeled T. Keen, a laundry bag that was labeled Keen, and a singlet that was labeled Keen. Now, what's worth noting here is that the three instances of Keen are all slightly different. You have one version that is K-E-A-N-E, that's on the laundry bag and on the tie. And then you have the singlet, which is K-E-A-N without the E. It's almost like this might have been a fake name or a pseudonym or just a misspelling. Maybe this is their real name. But these are the only labels on any of the clothing found around this case. Here we go with the fake names and identities. It's going to open up a whole rabbit hole. So boom, you have more clues, a lot of things in the, in the briefcase, you have these labels with names on them now, finally. So investigators thought that they had found clues that would help them identify this individual. But unfortunately, there were no records of a missing T. Keen in any English speaking country. And because of the fact that all the other labels had been removed, it was suspected that the Keen labels were left to distract the investigators, essentially lead them on a false chase. And whoever left them knew that Keen was not the man's name. It's also worth noting that after examining a coat in the suitcase, the stitching indicated that it had been made in the United States and that it was not imported. This implies that the man had either recently been to the United States or again is from the United States. But, like before, this is where the trail ran cold. It's just like one of those things where it's like, it's a little breadcrumb, but that's it. You know what I mean? Of, like it's still, a lot of little breadcrumbs, It's still yeah. so much that you don't know. That's just so frustrating. It's titillizing, the level of detail we have, but how, yeah, no right? answers. Exactly. Like, how can... How could somebody be off the grid this good? No dental records, no international records, no fingerprints, no name coming up on the missing persons list, at least in English speaking countries. Uh, it's wild, but that's where that trail ran cold. And now we flash forward several months into 1949. So June of 1949, investigators discovered a pocket in the man's pants that contained a rolled up piece of paper. So it had been months. What? Months. What? Mm-hmm. That they found a secret pocket in this man's pants. I'm beginning to think that these individuals, uh, these Australians might not have been as good as I was giving them credit for. Months? Of, I mean, granted, it's a secret pocket, but you've got to think I mean, I'm like, not expecting a secret pocket. If you're, you, you, here's the thing, though, but like, it's a secret pocket. If you're not expecting it, it's hard to find. But you got to think that if, if it's a case like this, that's just so complex and confusing, then at this point, like, you're going to be overly thorough or maybe that's just me oh yeah right like no it isn't just you they found a pastry inside the man's stomach before they found a secret pocket on his waistband yeah yeah <laughs> like i mean i know what he had for breakfast but i don't know what secrets Man. he's hiding on his belt yeah no <laughs> like, no idea i'll tell you what though it makes for a good story like right now you I'm, I'm in it we're deep in it so some say that it was a secret pocket and others say it was meant to hold a fob. And a fob in this instance would be like a chain watch or something like that. Christian told me offline, I don't want to pretend I'm smart. <laughs> it's not a key fob for, for, a, for a car these days because again, it's 40s. But uh, so there's some discrepancy as to if it was a secret pocket or, you know, like if you have those, uh, those tiny pockets that are inside your pocket on your jeans, you have those? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, I've, I've had those. I've never known what those were for. I got a penny lost in one once, but I mean... Yeah, it's like a quarter in maybe there. It could, it, it could be something like that. That's where I keep my quarter. Yeah, my, my block of zinc <laughs> goes right in. But on that piece of paper were the words to mom's shoe. Persian translating roughly to it has ended or finished in English. It was determined that this paper was torn from the pages of a book called The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, which leads us perfectly into the next section that I want to focus on, which is this book that I'm going to start calling The Rubiat moving forward. So The Rubiat is a book of poetry that was translated into English by Edward Fitzgerald. So the phrase Tamam Shud came specifically from a poem discussing life and mortality. In most English translations, they are actually the final words of the book. And given the translation of the phrase and the circumstances already surrounding the death, this further implied the possibility of suicide, that this was some sort of mini suicide note that they wanted to have on their person. Investigators began searching for the copy of the book that this had been torn from, and in July of 1949, a man who was never officially identified but was given the alias Ronald Francis turned in a copy of the book to authorities. Now remember, this is many months after the body was found, and what's interesting is that some say this man was later identified as John Freeman, who was a man that had no other connection to this case outside of living in the area. But what's interesting is that this person claimed to have found this in their car when they had parked it in that area. And when a body was found in November and was investigated in December, and you found a mysterious book in your car, around that time in that area, it's strange that you would just kind of go, I guess I have this book now, and sit on that yeah. for seven or eight months. Very strange. What? Reports conflict on when exactly he says he discovered the book. Like I said, he said he kind of found it in that time zone. However, some say that he recounted that he found it a week or two prior to the body being discovered, which would imply that this Somerton man had been in the area longer than initially believed, and perhaps, you know, this Ronald Francis person would have then been like, well, this has nothing to do with it. It's just a book I found in my car. Uh. Uh, some say that it was also found days after the body had been discovered. So that's really where there's a discrepancy here on the... Uh on if it's involved or not, so. Okay, in terms of what yeah, the timeline. Right, so some more details on the book and how it was found. Francis reported that he and his brother-in-law had gone for a drive in his car that he parked a few hundred yards from that beach that the Somerton man was found at. The brother-in-law is the one who said he saw the copy of the book lying on the floor by the rear seats, and both of them assumed that the book had belonged to the other individual. So Francis believed it was his brother-in-law, vice versa. Right. And so then Francis took the book and put it in the glove compartment to keep it safe and secure. It wasn't until the search for the book became more public that he turned it in. So my gut instincts to have suspicions here are quickly quelled. The fact that maybe this was found a week or two prior, maybe this was days after. So there isn't an immediate connection without hindsight. But then once the, the police are like, hey, there's a page torn from this book. We need to find it. He's like, oh, I stumbled into yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's like, this is a murder case, right? Or just I mean, not mm -hmm. necessarily a murder case. Just like someone is dead. Right. You look at everything. Honestly, like you'd still be a suspect if, if you know what I mean? Like in some way, shape or form, like you don't quite know how this person died. Right. You just know that they're dead. And you know that you are now involved because this book turned out to have that very same piece torn off of that page. So this was the book that the police and authorities had been looking for. Could you imagine though? You just stumble into a strange book that's wound up in your car. You kind of don't think anything of it. Maybe that's your friends, you put it away. And it turns out that a page had been torn from that and, and, and is central to a mystery that is still ongoing. 
I think I'd feel sick. I'd feel terrified. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's like now you're involved in it and you never want to be involved in something like that. You know what I mean? Like there are people, unfortunately, you know what I mean? Like because people make mistakes and it's hard to really tell what really happened unless you were there. You have people that have gone to jail and they're innocent. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's instantly what would be crossing my mind is just like, okay, am I in any way, shape or form in going to be in some, you know, deep muck going into this? <laughs> right. Am I going to implicate myself by getting involved? Yeah. But if you don't get involved and they find out, that's another bad thing. It's it's rough. Oh, yeah. You just got to get into it. But I would just be like, here we go. So this is where, like, I'm very impressed by the investigation. Clearly, there is, like, a trail of clues being followed. They keep digging deeper and deeper. Yeah. But what's really wild about it is that the deeper they dig, the wider it gets. So this specific edition of the book was extremely rare. It was published by New Zealand-based Whitcomb and Tombs, and on the back cover of the book, faint indentations of writing were discovered. So five lines of text were seen in all capital letters. I won't read them out for you because it would otherwise just be gobbledygook, but it looks a little bit like a code. I believe we might have a photo of that once again for social, but the first line, I I will read the first line just so you can get a sense of what's going on here. W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D. And then the next line is just more letters crossed out. There's another line of of a bunch more letters. And so it it immediately evokes the idea of a code or, or an encrypted message of some sort. And that's what authorities at the time believed. So as you can see, it's like chicken scratch writing. Looks like it was written very fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, one line is marked out. There's an X there that has two dashes out through it. Um, otherwise, you know, hard to hard to know what to make of this. Yeah, there are people out there that are way smarter than me and really into this. I look at this and go, "Aha, here we go." Mm-hmm. And I just I would look at this and go, "Damn it!" Like. <laughs> I'm gonna spend some time with this. <laughs> no, my Where God. do I even? What right. is what? <laughs> right. Well, that's where you hire the experts. It's true. Right? That's where you start cracking in. You find the next layer of clues. However, cryptography experts were unable to decipher any kind of meaningful message from this, even after publishing the writing in newspapers, essentially allowing them to crowdsource the solving of this potential code. And they had this to say, quote, there's an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis. But the indications together with the acceptance of the above breaks in sense indicate insofar as can be seen that the letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code, end quote. So after the cipher theory fell flat, some believed it was simply a method of shorthand or perhaps an acrostic. And the cryptography experts that I quoted before kind of distilled this into thinking, uh, there's no meaningful thing here. However, it is reasonable to think that maybe each of these letters is the first letter of a word and that this has the shape and feel of poetry and that this could be some sort of poetry or the verse of a poem. That's the verse of a poem? Listen, maybe it's super avant-garde. I, I'm not an expert on cryptography. Oh, what? But uh, let me tell you. If you're writing that to your average person, mm-hmm. you've gone too far. <laughs> you've gone too far. You've gone too far. The person. I'm going to write you a letter, and it's going to look just like that, and it's going to do nothing but confuse and yeah. frighten. Yeah, and I'll go, damn it, and just toss it away. Look, you, you, <laughs> you just get a pink letter in the mail that says, swack, sealed with a kiss. You, oh, from yeah. the darling back home. You open it, so you unfold what? it. It's just a bunch what of letters. What, what is this? Is there, yeah. 
So essentially they're theorizing that this is like an acronym. It's not a code, it's not a cipher, but that it could reference another poem or something therein. But otherwise it's unintelligible, otherwise it's been unsolved. That's another piece of this that is left open. And the last piece found in this book worth mentioning here is that multiple telephone numbers were also found in this writing, all but one leading to dead ends. And that one telephone belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson born as Jessica Harkness. That's where we lead into the next section that I want to talk about, which is all about this individual who we will dub the nurse. Hey everyone, it's Trevor here with some housekeeping notes, the kind of break, your little breather between the creeps, right? Today, the Tamam Shud case, very popular case, popular demand. Thank you all so much for your outpouring of suggestions. Love to see them, love to hear them. We get those on Twitter. We read them in the reviews on iTunes. And we also check them out on the website where we upload at roosterteeth.com. But again, you can listen to this podcast anywhere, wherever you prefer. But those are the ways you can engage with us. Our Twitter is at RedWebPod. You're going to see some images there. Anytime that we refer to an image, you can check it out there. We also have some merch in the store at store.roosterteeth.com. We have a mug. So when you're up late, Sipping on coffee or tea if you prefer, and you're looking into the mysteries, reading creepy pastas, staying up at 3 a.m., we're there for you. If you also want to represent us out on the streets, or maybe at home, if you prefer, wherever you are, we have a red shirt with the Red Web logo on the, uh, on the chest there. If you want to support the show, that's a great way to do it. Another way to do it is leaving a review or telling a friend. I know you, a lot of you got friends that love mysteries, and word of mouth is the best way to support a podcast like ours. So thank you all so much for your continued support, for listening to us each and every week, and for perhaps for sharing us. You know, you don't have to, but uh, I digress. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely, thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. I want to refer to one of the testimonials on their website for those who are considering this, This individual said that their therapist is wonderful. It is clear that they are experienced in their field, they are perceptive, and they get to the roots while being very compassionate and caring. I'm very grateful to have found my therapist through BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash redweb, that's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Red Web listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash redweb. Mental health is a serious topic, and I hope you all treat it seriously. Now with that and the sponsors out of the way, let's get right back into it. So what's interesting about the nurse, and why I want to call her the nurse at least right now, is because it wasn't until a 60-minute story that was done in 2013 that Thompson was officially identified uh, before her name had never been revealed, or at least her identity, because she requested that authorities keep that secret, stating that it would be embarrassing and harmful to her reputation to be linked to such a case, and I don't blame her. 
At the time, it was actually suspected that her real name would serve as some sort of decryption key for the supposed code that we just went over. And she was referred to by a handful of pseudonyms from Justine to Teresa Johnson, uh, born as Teresa Powell, there was also a pseudonym of Tina, but what's interesting here is that Thompson lived about 1300 feet or 400 meters north of Somerton Beach where the body was found. And just thinking, you know, as an aside for a moment, you know, we don't really know the whereabouts of this Somerton man leading up to this case or leading up to his death, but now we have a phone number from an individual who is, you know, 1300 feet away. We have either a drop-off point or some other means for this book to show up in someone's car nearby. So there's actual, you know, there's activity going on in the town around, which leaves me hopeful that there's other clues to be found in, in this area. Yeah, this is, there's just so much, I don't know, man. Like there's so many little pieces here and there. There's a lot to keep track of. It's like there's only little pieces and these are like important pieces and they're tangible, but but inconclusive. We'll get a little scent of something mm -hmm. and then lose and you know, like it's lost and right. Nothing is like piecing together, right? I feel like I'm constantly building the edge of a puzzle. And I'm just like, how many yeah. edges are there? Right. When can I start building inwards? You complete? put all the side pieces together and then you found a fifth side and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. No fifth side. Yeah, okay. All right, so back into, th into the four-dimensional puzzle. So, when she was questioned by authorities, clearly she claimed that she did not know this man and that she didn't know why he would have her number. Maybe this isn't his book. Who knows? But... She did report that sometime in 1948, the year prior to these events unfolding, an unidentified man attempted to visit her and asked a neighbor about her. She did not experience this. Her neighbors are the ones who told her about this. And so we don't have any visual way to kind of verify, you know, looking at the bust, hey, is this this individual? But it is interesting that her neighbor is saying, hey, there was a mysterious man looking for you that's been coming around. Man, it's just one of those things, right? It could have been anybody. Right? You know what I mean? Like, we're, we're, we're looking for anything or any type of clue or reason to all of this. Right. I mean, I'm sitting here saying, like, oh, man, you know, it's it got, it's got to be the guy. This could be completely unrelated. It could be a mailman needing a signature for a thing. I don't know if that was a thing in the 40s, but I often miss the guy trying to get a signature for packages. And it, who's to say? Yeah. Or an old friend. Could be anybody. You're right. Other people noted that at multiple times during the investigation, she felt evasive or she kind of gave off that vibe that she just didn't wish to talk about the case or be involved in any way. But that kind of makes sense with what she was saying, where she thought that this would damage her reputation, that she doesn't want to get involved. But it also comes off as quite fishy. In investigating, they eventually took her to see the cast of the man's face, like I said, to maybe see if she recognized him in any way. But upon seeing the bust, she seems, quote, completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she might faint, oh. end quote. What? Yeah. Well, again, that could fall two ways. That could fall, you know, that could be a red flag, or that could just be a human being going, that is the bust of a dead man that died at this beach. Yeah, but why would you be taken back? Taken aback? It's just like, okay, you're looking at the bust, you're not looking at the dead person. Yeah, right. I mean, it could just be disturbing to see, but if you recognize that face, if you're like, oh my God, then you're really going to be taken aback. Yeah. So Ooh. she immediately looked away, and she apparently wouldn't look again 
at the bust. And after more questioning, she finally revealed that she served as a nurse at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney during World War II, where she owned a copy of the Rubaiyat. And in 1945, she said she gave that copy to an Australian Army Lieutenant named Alfred Boxall. After the war ended, she moved to Melbourne and married a man by the name of Prosper Thompson. She claimed to receive a letter from Boxall, but told him at that time that she was married. This led authorities to start to believe that Boxall was in fact the Somerton man. However, in July of 1949, Boxall was found alive and well, and still in possession of Thompson's copy of the Rubaiyat. So it even contained a signed message from Thompson herself, who signed it as Justin, one of her pseudonyms at the time. And when questioned, he was completely unaware of any connection between either he and the man, or Thompson and the man, or this other copy of the Rubaiyat. And that is what we have factually, story-wise, on the book, on the man and the nurse. What? Everything with the story. Those are all the facts. And as always, it feels like we're really getting somewhere and what? it feels like you're getting concrete details and that's where it kind of ends. Yeah, where it ends or just fizzles out. I mean, I with the case that but has like, been unfolding in front of me, I was like, there's, there's no way that that's it. Like, that's the guy, you know what I mean? Like, that's the identity. Right, it, no way. So here's what's blowing my little bean, okay? You've got this Rubiot, and you know, we might get into this, but it turns out that this book was a little bit more popular than one might suspect in Australia in particular around this time period, but that doesn't really answer the question as to why does, so Thompson had this Rubiot. She gave it to Boxel many years prior. He still has that one. Where the heck did this original rare edition come from that had her phone number on it? Yeah. That that had a piece that was folded in this mysterious man's penny pocket. What's happening? What are we missing and why, you know? Question her, question this person more. She was taken back by the bus. I want answers. I want to watch that 60 minutes interview. I want to, I want to psychoanalyze to see if she was telling the truth. I need to get to answers, but I don't think we will. I believe she passed away in the early 2000s, around 2007 or so, Christian? Oh, it was in fact 2007. Okay. But yeah, unfortunately, we won't be hearing any more from her, but we do have some interesting tidbits from that interview that we will dive into here throughout the theories section because uh, some of the things she had to say does in fact fuel some of these theories. So the first theory we're going to discuss is that the Somerton man had a child with Thompson before he then committed suicide. So what's interesting here is that Thompson had a son named Robin in 1947. It was found that the Somerton man and this child Robin both had hypodontia, a rare genetic disorder of both lateral incisors, which is found in about 2% of the general population. It was also found that the two had larger Simba than Cavum. And for those like myself who have no idea what ear parts are called. I say Lion King, I've seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> they both held Simba up real high. It's essentially a very rare condition where the the upper ear hollow is larger than the lower ear hollow. And what's important to note here is that it's a genetic trait that is found in only one to 2% of the Caucasian population. So oh. combining these two things, you've got the short incisors, 2% of the population combined with this ear trait that is only one to 2%. Yeah, narrows it down a bit. Oh yes. <laughs> it, with, the chance of this being coincidence is between one in 10 million and one in 20 million. So you're, there's still a chance, <laughs> but not a very good one. Yeah. So the, so, so the theory feels strong right now. It was also found that Prosper, 
Her husband was in the middle of divorcing his first wife in 1949, and then the two did not marry until 1950, which continues to leave a little bit of, uh, you know, timeline there where was it Prosper, her original husband? Was it another suitor? Was it this Somerton man who was the father to the child back in 1947? There's some uh, room to, to kind of feel that one out because clearly he was still uh, divorcing his previous wife. Right. But in response to that, and the theory states that Thompson had the child with either the Somerton man or Boxel, who we discussed earlier, but that Thompson passed him off as Prosper's son. It further states that there was some kind of falling out between Thompson and the Somerton man, perhaps losing the right to see his supposed son, which might have driven him to suicide. Her daughter, Kate, claimed that her mother-in-law knew the Somerton man in an interview with 60 Minutes. So earlier, uh, I believe I was mistaken. I, I think I implied that Thompson was the one on 60 Minutes. I meant to say, Kate, her daughter is the one who did the interview, uh, but they discussed Thompson and her involvement in this case. Okay. But Kate had this to say, quote, she said to me she knew who he was, but she wasn't going to let that out of the bag, end quote. Oh. So now, yep, connect oh. the dots, See, putting it yep. all together. That's what we knew. She's not blushing because she, you know, she's blushing because she knows. She's, she's acting strange. She doesn't want to look at the bus because she knows this yeah, man. Yeah, she knows. Yeah. I mean, come on. She knows this you man. Don't, you don't get taken back by a, a bust. Mm-hmm. It's not how that, I don't know. For the most part, it's not how that works. And this is her daughter, no less. Her daughter straight up saying, like, my mom said this. Yeah. And so to me that that lends this theory a whole lot of credence that there was a secret relationship here. You know, maybe he was in the military because she was in a military hospital and maybe that's how they met during World War II. Maybe he was from the U.S. It, man, interesting. Ooh. And that could be why no records are found. And maybe the U.S. at this point in time when war is fresh on the brain, even with an ally, they don't really want to divulge yeah, the their own soldiers' private information. Feels strong. Feels strong. I could go with that. I really could. But this is all banking off of the daughter, though. It is banking off her telling the truth and nothing but the whole truth. And that her memory is solid. But that is a very specific thing to claim your mother said, especially in light of how she spoke to the authorities, you know? Yeah. Well, that, that's theory number one. I think that that sounds very strong, but there are other details that are quite interesting yet to come. Theory number two states that he was a spy and that he was in fact poisoned. Because don't forget, we didn't really rule out the poisoning bit, yep. especially with the pasty being in the stomach and whatnot. So because this happened at the beginning of the Cold War, that's what this theory starts to hang its hat on. So for some quick background on this theory in particular, remember this is happening towards the beginning of the Cold War, and both the Radium Hill uranium mine and the military research facility called Woomera Test Range were both located near Adelaide, which is where this all went down. And on the body, the Somerton's man's shoes had been recently polished and cleaned, perhaps suggesting that he had not walked much, if at all, in the area, implying that the body might have been dumped there. And a witness, in fact, in 1959, 10 years after the fact, claimed that he had seen a figure carrying someone over their shoulder on the beach the night before the death, further corroborating the idea that the body was dumped. So a full decade later, yeah, but, to remember that detail. Yeah, it's like, can you really believe that, right? At this point, like, it's, I'm assuming it's a well-known, like, case or mystery. That might just be someone Well, just, yeah, even the guy with the book figured out that he was involved months later, at least. Yeah. You see a man carrying someone at night on a beach and then, <laughs> you know, someone 
What took you 10 years? Oh, come on. How are you? What, like, That's interesting. I, I, I can't subscribe to that. Like, what is the what is the point of keeping that a secret? Right. And what what's interesting to me further is that they saw it at night, maybe the night before. Because what's interesting is that the eyewitnesses that saw him sitting at the beach, the person that came back the next day and found him, etc., they saw him during the day, or at least the evening. And the body supposedly passed away at 2 a.m. And so was it the night before that, on November 29th, that they dumped him and then he just was there the whole day? Yeah. But then was suddenly found two days later? I don't know. It's, it's interesting timing, at least. I don't know, man. I feel like you'd bring that up. It, it's, it was a case that was known, you know what I mean? And if I remember correctly, they went to the public for a couple things. Mm-hmm. So there was stuff posted in the papers. What is what what is, what is the point? Like I don't understand. You don't remember it during that time. It just didn't come to my mind. If I saw like someone carrying a <laughs> body, or you know what I mean, or like mm-hmm. a silhouette of a person which looked like they were carrying like a big duffel bag or something in the distance, like it'd be like, huh, interesting. And then at night on a beach. You At, Looney Tunes, yeah. get out of here. No one's walking around with bodies slumped over their shoulders on the beach. Yeah. That's just like, that's just a, a red flag. You see it, you say it. I don't know. That's see something, that. say something. I mean, yeah. So furthermore on this theory, to further substantiate this story, experts came forward stating that two poisons could have possibly been the cause of death. That would be Digitalis and Oibayan. Both leave no traces after death. And so that would line up with what happened here, that no foreign substances were found, and if these are untraceable in some way, that they're great candidates. So some believe that the poison was laced on one of the cigarettes, which would explain why he had the Conceda cigarettes, as well as the different brand, the Army Club brand cigarettes on his person. That perhaps these more luxurious cigarettes, the Conceda's, were the ones that were laced and packed away with his Army Club ones. If you recall, uh, he had that cigarette sitting on his shirt collar as if he had just put it to his lips and that it had fallen out of his mouth while sitting there in some way. Yeah. So, so far we have a couple loose ends that go out to try to substantiate this theory, but to me, this is the most intriguing piece. There was in fact another individual named George Marshall who also died in Australia after the war with a different copy of the Rubaiyat. His copy of the book was published in London by Methune. It was one of only five editions, so it was just as rare as the Somerton Man's copy. And theorists suggest that these books were in some way used to talk amongst each other, that they helped them talk in code in a way by having these, these rare Rubiot books, and, uh, and that maybe this George Marshall was just another spy of some sort. But he died also in Australia, and was his death also by mysterious circumstances, Christian? Do you remember that? So I've got a couple bullet points on George Marshall. He died in 1945 in Sydney, Australia. His death was ruled a suicide by poisoning. It's kind of, it's it says he had a barbituric acid powder uh, on his body, and on his chest was a copy of the Rubiot. He did not seem to have any military experience. He was a philosopher and a failed poet and his brother was a chief minister in Singapore, so there's some slight political connection there, but that's about all we have on him. Interesting. Oh. So there's still some, like, some some through threads here, like, yep. maybe there's poison in play, maybe, you know, the, like, the book is in play, maybe the suicide part is in play. That's really interesting. It's kind of... But what throws me, like, 
every time we uncover something, there's something else that throws me. He's a philosopher. Yeah. As opposed to... A old poet. You know, a, a spy or some sort of army individual. But speaking on like military intelligence and stuff like that, another piece that is drawn on to try to substantiate the fact that the Summerton Man was a spy or that there's some sort of espionage going on is that if you recall Boxel, well, apparently worked in military intelligence during the war. And given his connection to the nurse and her connection to Boxel, etc., perhaps there is some unknown relationship between these two men, mm-hmm. and and that's what people are trying to tr- to draw on. And I know that yeah. that's a far-fetched theory. Trying to connect. Um, yeah, just trying to find ways to substantiate that this is a spy, and maybe that's why he doesn't have these dental records. Maybe that's why we're not figuring out who it is, because whatever agency or country he hails from, uh, perhaps just said, well, that's our agent out. You know, we're just mm-hmm. going to cut ties because we don't want to let in any sort of intelligence. But Boxel replied when questioned about this, quote, it's quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? End quote. And I would say that perhaps it is. Perhaps it's a little too made for film. But, hey, man, it's also the 40s. Right. Times were weird, man. Yeah. Things were different. Different times, different different ways of doing things. Look, (laughs) what this tells me is don't own this rare book. (laughs) You don't want to be found with this book. No. Dead or alive. Not at all. And, And go ahead and scrub your library. Get your shelves out. You know, start looking at all your literature, making sure there's no codes hidden in anything because... You might find you something. Might I don't know. Got. You don't want to, <laughs> You might be a part of something. Ooh. But that is the uh kind of the the second most popular theory is that the Summerton man was some sort of spy, some sort of intelligence agent. Yeah. And and I can believe that. Honestly, I think there's some I knew, I knew that theory was coming. Yeah, there's some intelligence here. There's some I I don't want to call it evidence, but there's some tangible pieces here. What's interesting about this theory it's a little sparse, but there's some other theories that kind of spin off of it to try to take different angles from it. For example, this next theory that I have here is that he was murdered by Thompson and that Thompson herself was the spy. In fact, a Soviet spy. Oh. Now, there's not much information on this, but there is, again, the interview with 60 Minutes that Kate Thompson, her daughter, did. And she had this to say, quote, she had a dark, a very dark side. There's always that fear that I've thought that maybe she was responsible for his death. And now that's interesting because maybe that is why she was taken so aback. And maybe that is why she couldn't bring herself to look at the bust. It doesn't say, hey, I'm a Soviet spy. Yeah, but... uh, But the Soviet spy piece is just drawing on her relationship to the military hospital, to the fact that the Cold War was brewing. It's just pulling on a couple of things in the zeitgeist, really. Yeah. To be honest, I didn't even think about, yeah, looking at her as someone that was potentially a spy or murder. But I mean, like, once you start getting into, like, government conspiracies and spies, and, and then it's like, anybody could be the, you know what right. I mean, the one. But that, I mean, that was the thing. That was the thing. Mid-1900s, like, the Red Scare, you know, people were afraid of everybody. That's why you had that see something, say something. That's true. Yeah. Those were, Again, those were the times, yeah. But, you know, going back to the child with Thompson and the committed suicide, you know, this pulls on some of those strings, too. Really, the only detail changed here outside of the Soviet spy piece is that perhaps they did have a child together. Perhaps there was a relationship together. Perhaps the story with the neighbor saying, hey, someone's looking for you was true. And instead of it being a suicide, that it was a murder of some sort because her number's in the book, man. Her number's in the book. Yeah, Maybe he it, ripped out this piece and then threw the book in this car window while he was on his way to the beach. It's just, there's so many 
connected dots here. It's in the book, though. You know what I mean? Like, I, right. I fully, fully believe that she's in there. That she knows this person, hundred percent. Oh like, yeah. That's too many. I don't know. That's too many coincidences for me. I mean, that's that's evidence right there. Mm-hmm. And the final theory, kind of once again, builds off of those two main ones, but states that the Summerton Man and Thompson were part of a cult. That this cult dedicated themselves to and followed the writings of the Rubiot. That Marshall, the individual who died with the book on him elsewhere. Uh, in 1945, that he was also a member of this cult, and that the Somerton man's death was part of a cult-related suicide. That just seems so far out there. I'm, I don't know, though. I'm, like, speechless on this one because cults are weird. Cults are weird. And there is this, like, cults rare just... book. Exactly. That's, that is what's throwing me the most, and this is exactly why we called this show Red Web, because yeah. if, you, if you've got the bulletin board in your mind and you have all the evidence and you're drawing red strings, there's so much connected detail here. It's just at your fingertips that it's frustrating that you can't come up with a, a solid answers all conclusion, you know? No. And the thing is, it's like I was saying earlier, we have like actual like bits and pieces to start to lay the foundation for different theories. And then it, that's it. That's all we get. So those are the main theories. I have a couple closing statements, some updates kind of throughout the years that are interesting. So the Summerton Man was buried in 1949. And over the years, flowers had actually been discovered on the grave. No one knows who has left these flowers. Uh, maybe it is just a caring citizen that knew that this was an unidentified man that deserved some love. Or perhaps there's someone out there, a family member, a friend, a cult member, a spy that knew who he was. Man, I feel like this would be an amazing film. Yeah. I mean, also, like, you know, stake out. Stake it out. Stake it out, man. Like, who's, who's coming up? Who's dropping these flowers I mean, off? I don't know if it's still happening, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Like, you'd want to interview whoever's leaving these flowers and be like, hey, just, are you involved or just, oh, okay, 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 okay. okay. <laughs> I just yeah, you're good, you're good, but I'm just questions asking. questions here. Yeah. But to this day, no one has officially come forward to claim the body. Hundreds of false identifications have come forward over the years. And in 2011, an Adelaide woman found an ID card in her father's possessions with the name H.C. Reynolds. It was issued in the United States to a foreign seaman during World War I. It was given to the biological anthropologist Maciej Hennenberg to compare the ID photo to photos of the Somerton man. There were some similarities around the nose, lips, eyes, and ears, uh, including a similar mole on the cheek. The US and UK National Archives and the Australian War Memorial Research Center found no records of an H.C. Reynolds. And some believe the card belonged to a man named Horace Charles Reynolds, who died in 1953, who would be a separate individual. Requests for exhumation to take DNA samples have been made over the years since, obviously, the advent of analyzing DNA, and all have been denied until October of 2019. Another request was granted, and there are plans to compare the DNA found on the plaster with Robin's daughter. Ooh. It's still unsolved to this day, but that is going to be very interesting to see the results yeah. of that. Okay, because, so like, there is hope to, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of like crack this open a little bit more. Right. Now remember, Robin was the son of Nurse Thompson, presumably the son of the Somerton man as well. So what's going to happen is I'm specifically going to grab that DNA from the Somerton man and then compare it to the lineage. <laughs> yeah of Robin. I'm just going to hold it up, you know, to both eyes, you know, yeah, right up in the light. <laughs> but yeah, still unsolved to this day. And as time goes on, the only hope we can have to solving this is probably going to be in that DNA. 
And if it turns out that there's not a match, this probably won't ever be solved because key witnesses over the years have passed away, key evidence such as the suitcase no longer exists, and witness statements have disappeared from police files over the years. And so much like anything with time, it kind of has just been fading away. Yeah, I mean, the, honestly, that's a little bit of hope there with the DNA testing. Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. Like, this is another one of those stories that I had kind of been aware of, at least uh, surface level. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of these stories that we've been talking about on Red Web always have very recent, you know, events. Like, this goes back to October 29, or excuse me, October 2019. Uh, that's pretty recent, given that this all went down in mm -hmm. 1949. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if something comes out, you best believe we're going to have to do an update episode on this. Also, October 2019, like, DNA test, come on, hurry up. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, like, who's holding it up? I'm tapping my watch over here. Let's put a priority on that test, okay? <laughs> yeah, this is sitting on some guy's desk. He's sniffling. He's just kind of like, scrolling, okay, playing. To it. People he's playing Mahjong on his year. computer. Yeah. Level 99, this guy. So with a couple extra nuggets of information having come out since the investigation and with the theories all behind us, let's do a rating system. On strength of conspiracy from 1 to 10, 10 being the strongest, 1 being the weakest, how are you feeling about these theories on the Summerton Man? Oh, out of 10 on theories. I mean... Because I'm thinking there's a lot of stuff to sink our teeth into and really is. like lean on. I, I mean, I'm going to... But I'm not feeling an answer. Same here. So I can't go as high as like a eight to ten. I think I think I'm settling around a seven. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd I think I'd put this at an eight. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting I'm, I'm touching up a little bit to the ceiling, but it's it's really because and we'll you know the DNA is going to change this one way or the other. It's really because of those rare traits that he shares with the child. And the relation between the book and this individual, I think there's some really strong ties that these theories are leaning on. And that's a good thing. They're not leaning on, uh, you know, nebulous yeah. evidence. They're not leaning on assumption. Uh, and so to me, yeah, somewhere between a seven and eight. And, I, and I, I'm inclined to believe these things, especially, <laughs> I mean, two, two percent of one genetic trait and one to two percent of another one. Mathematically, I mean, we're in there. We've got it. It's, I mean, it's so close, but like, it just, it could just all fall apart. You it could fall I mean? apart. Yeah, but I mean, I apart. just feel like we're like right there at the cusp. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, ugh, if we just got this test. Right. <laughs> but uh, it'll be interesting to figure out what happens from, from here. But we'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, whether it be on this case or about the show in general. You can leave us a review on iTunes or hit us up on social media. If you want to leave comments on any given episode, we also upload these to roosterteeth.com. That's our parent company, in case you weren't aware. But uh, otherwise, we will see you guys next week for another mystery. <laughs>